Hey, it's good to see everybody today. I didn't know if we'd have 10 people here. We have 20. <laughs> no, it's good. Love it. Um, happy Memorial Day to everybody. Hope your weekend's going well. And uh, I think it's uh, a good thing to be appreciative of even uh, the people that I have in my life that have sacrificed much um, for our country. Um, not that we fly the flag of America over the cross. We are first citizens of heaven, but yet God has given us this, this place to live, this country, and people have made great sacrifices for it. So I um, hope that's also part of your, just your weekend, uh, thinking about that. And we're in this series right now where we're looking at Meals with Jesus. That's what we're calling it. It's this thread, really, that runs through the whole storyline of the Bible, it's, it's a thread that we hardly notice, and if we do notice it, we over-spiritualize it. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, I just think Christians, especially Christians in, in, in the West, have been just uncomfortable with food, with eating, drinking, um, feasting, banqueting. Uh, oftentimes we see spirituality as fasting. When in the Bible, uh, spirituality is actually feasting. Um, and the, the reason I like this thread that runs through the Bible and that it's connected to Jesus is because the kingdom of heaven is more than spiritual. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is going to include our bodies. God is going to one day redeem our bodies. Um, just like food engages our senses, uh, God is going to redeem our senses. Who knows? We may have more than five. We may have ten. We may have twenty senses uh, in, our, in our redeemed state. Um, food is very earthy. And God is going to redeem the earth. And so when you put those two together... It, it, it keeps that balance, keeps us from over-spiritualizing everything. The kingdom of heaven is a banquet. And we've already seen how uh, Jesus offered this banquet the, as the king of righteousness, Melchizedek, to Abraham uh, in the form of bread and wine. Um, and then Abraham, likewise, offered that banquet to, to strangers. So we eat to give it away. And uh, today we're going to go further in this story because Abraham's family has now uh, increased. I mean, Abraham means father of a multitude, and, and he, his family has become just that. It's a great multitude, uh, prospering in the land of Egypt, and that's where we're going to look. So turn your Bibles to Exodus 16, 57, if you have a blue one like this. And a secondary text in the Psalms. You have these Psalms like Psalm 77, Psalm 78, and a few others that just do the, this retelling of the story. So Psalm 78 is found on page 472. Let's stand uh, for the reading of God's word. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Tzin and between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt in the desert, in this place, where they are, 
the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to Moses and Aaron, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat, ate all the food we wanted, and you have brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day, gather enough for that day, and in this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day they are to prepare what they bring in, and that it will be twice as much as they gather on the other two days. God's already even though he hasn't instructed Sabbath, is preparing them for Sabbath. So Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites in the evening, you will know it is the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. And who are we, Moses and Aaron, Moses, Aaron, and God, that you should grumble against us? And then skipping down to verse 13. That evening, quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer, a day's worth of food for each person that you have in your, in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, their daily need, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone gathered just as much as they needed. And then Moses said to them, No one of you can keep any of it for the next day. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses, and they kept part of it for the next day, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it then melted away. And then Psalm 78, starting with verse 16. But they willfully put God to the test by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God. They said, Can God really spread a table in the wilderness? True, he struck the rock and water gushed forth streams which flowed abundantly, but can he also give us bread? Can he supply meat for his people? When the Lord heard heard them, he was furious. His fire broke out against Jacob, and his wrath rose against Israel, for they did not believe in God or trust in his deliverance. Yet he gave a command to the skies above, He opened the doors of the heaven. He rained down manna for the people to eat. He gave them the grain of heaven. Human beings ate the bread of angels. And he sent them all the food they could eat. This is God's word. You can be seated. Okay, so I think most of us know the story. Uh, These Hebrews um, have become... A great prosperous people living in Egypt. In essence, they've become a threat to Egyptian identity, to Egyptian security. And so Pharaoh makes them slaves. Uh, He also kind of unleashes a genocide where um, all the male children are to be thrown in the Nile. 
And it's from this that God delivers them. In fact, even when you think about how God delivers them, I mean, we could have done a whole sermon on that in this series. Um, it's through a meal. I mean, God gives them specific instructions to eat a certain kind of meal with a certain menu. Today it's called the Passover meal. And it includes the bread and the wine. But now it also has the addition of a lamb. Because that lamb is going to give deeper meaning to the bread and the wine. When you think about it, it's this, this lamb that's eaten by the people that delivers them. So then they get out of Egypt, and then what? Well, this, this pillar that's cloud by day and it's a fire by night shows up. It, it greets them. And it leads them, first of all, through the sea. But I don't know, like, what you're thinking. I mean, I grew up with all these uh, Sunday school stories. Um, the, 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 this pillar of cloud and, and, and fire. And the question that I wish someone had raised, like, who's in that cloud? Because the cloud is really just the veil, the shroud. Listen to what Psalm 78 says. That's the psalm we read, but these verses are a little bit later. But God brought his people out like a flock. He led them like sheep through the desert. Can you picture that? Because in, in, in that world, that is such a common sight. Uh, sheep aren't just in fences uh, somewhere grazing uh, along the side. Every sheep has a shepherd, and, they, and, and as a flock, they're always following the shepherd behind them. That's, what, that's the imagery that, that the psalmist is picking up on that God did when he led them through the Dead Sea and then into the desert. And then when I put Jude 1 verse 5, that text we looked at last week, where the most ancient manuscripts don't say the Lord delivered them from Egypt, but literally, Jesus, Jesus delivered them. He's just veiled. He's enshrouded with this cloud. But he's a good shepherd. And he's shepherding his sheep. And where is he shepherding them to? The desert. Don't think that Israel wandered aimlessly for 40 years in the desert. Israel was led there. They had a shepherd. Now, the desert, I want to just show you uh, a, a picture of this. Uh, that right there, first of all, is an aerial of the Nile River. And the Nile, of course, runs through Egypt. And I don't know what you think of in, uh, when you think Egypt, at least in the biblical story, but Egypt essentially is the United States. I mean, it is the most prosperous nation in the world. And the reason why it's so prosperous is because of that Nile River. It just was this breadbasket. Um, but what people don't often consider is that when people lived in Egypt, they didn't live throughout Egypt. They basically hugged that river because that river was, was prosperity. It was food. 
Um, that river was God. They worshiped that river. But literally, sometimes just a football field or more on either side of that river, desert. Desert. Let me show you a picture more close up. Right along the Nile, fertil fertility, prosperity, but you just go further up. And so their worldview was black and white. Life was the Nile. Death was the desert. The, death, the, the, the desert was chaos. It was, it, was, it, was, it was terror to them. And I want you to feel this. God, we just know the story. He, he, he takes them out of Egypt and then he leads them into the desert, into that terrifying place, place of death. Pack a suitcase, everybody. Leave Egypt behind. I'll meet you in the desert. A couple weeks from now, I'm going to be in uh, this part of the world. I, I lead groups there, and I'm telling you, it's still terrifying, even though we're there just three days, even though we know we're going back to a hotel at night. Uh, when you step into that Sinai Desert, and you get away from the bus just a little bit, you start to feel vulnerable. You start to wonder, am I going to make it today? Do I have what it takes? And this terror starts to creep in. God led them. Deuteronomy 8 says, I led you. Literally, I walked you. Not just to this desert, but I walked with you in this desert for 40 years. Can you imagine Christ veiled in that cloud, walking with his people in the desert? We need to get this in our minds because so much of life is a desert. And in a moment, any of us can be put there. And what an amazing thought when we're in that spot. To know that I have a good shepherd, Christ, who is with me, who's walking with me, who's taking care of me, who is sustaining me. Now God says in Deuteronomy 8, I, I led you here for 40 years. This is where you got to ask the why question. Why is God doing this? 40 years. He's saving them. Now, salvation to us is, is forgiveness. It's, it's God forgiving us. It's, it's God accepting us. But salvation, biblically, of course it involves God forgiving us. Of course it involves God saving us. But, but salvation is God's deliverance. It literally means to be liberated from slavery. In fact, the, the word um, for Egypt in, in the original language means to be caged in. So when God saves his people, he is liberating them from bondage, from slavery. 
And we see, like, now what, what, what's going on in their hearts. In the text that we read in Exodus 6, 16, verse 2, it says they started to grumble and complain. And they start thinking about all those pots of meat um, that they got to sat or, sit around and that delicious food that they got to eat when they were in Egypt. See, the, the, the easy part for God in saving them is getting them out of Egypt. The hard part is getting Egypt out of his people. In fact, verse 3, um, they literally are like wishing they're dead. Oh, we just wish we were dead. I'm telling you, that's the language of addiction. Because they are remembering Egypt, a place where they were slaves, as something good. And this tells me that even though they are free from that physical location of Egypt, they are still slaves in their mind. They're slaves in their hearts. And what God has to do is he has to get the slavery out of them. Because this is what happens when we live in Egypt for too long. We say we love God. We say we trust God. But our heart is really attached to other things. There are so many Christians who are saved, but still slaves. Slaves to Egypt. We say we love God, but what we really love are his gifts. What God maybe can do for us. Now, I think today we, we, we live with this, this powerful myth about what shalom is. I mean, we're, we're no different than the Egyptians. We still think that shalom is life in Egypt. That shalom is if I get that or achieve that or live in that neighborhood with that kind of house, if I could get that kind of job, be married to that kind of spouse, have those kind of parents, um, have those kind of kids, uh, be able to go on that kind of vacation, uh, send my kid to that kind of school, have that kind of success... We just believe that that's, that's shalom. That shalom is still found in Egypt. You know what true shalom is today? True shalom is not living in Egypt. True shalom is living, living in the arms of God. Only desert can teach us that. This is why God says something that I think ought to make the hair raise on the back of our necks. God says, I led you in this place for 40 years to make you hungry. To make you hungry. I mean, that sounds almost cruel. I mean, at first blush, it seems like God is hurting them. But he isn't. He's actually helping them by getting them to see who they really are, what their true hunger and thirst is, and most importantly, what their hearts really need to be satisfied. Because you and I have been made for God. We've been made to know him. 
We've been made to love him. We've been made to, to take him in. And we will never be satisfied truly with anything but God. So really, this is good parenting, what God is doing. In making them hunger, he's basically taking away their candy. All the sweet things of Egypt that they think are ultimately going to satisfy, God's saying, I have to do that so you can find true sweetness. Now look at Israel's response. In Psalm 78, verse 18, we, we, we read this. They put God to the test. And the way that they put God to the test is they demand of God for food according to their desires. I mean, here we see that they really are like spoiled, spoiled kids. They are, they're putting demands on God. God, we want the food of Egypt. Give us our candy. And their desires now have actually become their rights. See, when we think that we have a right to the things that we desire, that we have a right to a comfortable life, that we have a right to a happy marriage, that we have a right to this form of pleasure, that we have a right to this kind of leisure, that we have a right to this, a right to that, we are now on the path to misery and despair. Do you know that psychologists are now saying that by, by the year 2020, the number one psychological diagnosis of, of, of Americans will be worry. Worry. Stop and think about this. Never has a culture had more of Egypt. Never have we prospered more. Never had we had more. Result? Worry. And it's not even just worry. Never has a culture had the comforts that we have, the, the, the trinkets, the conveniences, all the forms of leisure and pleasure that right are at our fingertips. And yet never has a culture been so bored, so depressed, or in a place of despair like ours. I was reminded this week of, uh, of the story of, of Jacob when Jacob, his heart's desire was for Rachel. Beautiful, beautiful Rachel. And he just had to have Rachel at all costs. He worked for seven years. He finally gets Rachel. And then he had the morning after effect. He wakes up to Leah, who the Bible describes as having weak eyes. And I like what Tim Keller says, that is true about everything that we think is going to satisfy us or that we think we have a right to. When we finally get it, Rachel will always be Leah the next day. And see, this is how Israel tests God in, in Psalm 78 verse 19. They don't say, God, can, we're hungry, we're, we're, we're thirsty, can, can, can you sustain us in the desert. No, it's God, can you pre pre prepare a table? Can you provide a banquet in the desert? 
Can you satisfy us? And I love what uh, the psalmist then says in Psalm 78, verse 20. True, God struck the rock and water gushed out. Streams flowed abundantly. But then they said, but can he also give us bread? Can he supply meat for his people? And when the Lord heard them, he was furious. But yet, in his grace, he gave a command to the skies above. He opened the doors of the heaven. He rained down manna for the people to eat. He gave them the grain of heaven. Human beings ate the bread of angels. God provides gushing waters and manna. Now, what's manna? That's the first thing Israel asked in, in, in verse 15 of Exodus text. Um, what is it? In fact, if, if, if you want to know what manna means, it's just that. It means what is it? Because they don't know what it is, which means that they actually have to trust God. Because in our deserts, that's what we're all called to do. Trust God. But God even pushes this, this whole thing with, with, with manna further um, in, in verses 16 to 19. He gives his instruction about how they are to uh, take it in and, and, and all of that. He says, I'm going to give you just enough for each day. Not too much, not too little, but just enough. So even we read that when they tried to take uh, more manna in and store it for the, for the next days to come, it spoiled. Which tells us then that manna is daily bread. You don't get to live on yesterday's bread. You have to trust that God will provide just enough for each day. Which is exactly how Jesus talks about worry. He says, do not worry. Do not be like the pagans, the Greeks, the Gentiles who worry about their clothes, their, their needs, all of that. He's like, no, what you get to worry about is just this day. Because this day has enough worry of, of, of its own. You can't live that, play that game. God's saying, trust me. Trust me that every day I'm going to provide just enough. Here's some other things that the Bible tells us about manna. Manna is real food. It's real food that is directly from the hand of God. Verse 4, God said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven. Now here's another interesting thing about manna. Manna is desert food. It's the food that God only provides when Israel is in the desert. So the, mo the moment that Israel finally leaves that desert 40 years later, the, the, the manna stops. Manna's desert food. Now, now, don't think of manna as all these boxes of cornflakes like spread across the desert. I know that's kind of what comes to my mind. Um, this is not ordinary food. This food is supernatural, it's miraculous, it supernaturally will sustain Israel in that dry and weary place for 40 years. Every single night, God provided a miracle. 
mean, just think about it. You, you, you could have a night where you just can't sleep. You're tossing and turning, and you could go outside your tent and, and, and look up at the skies and see the manna just miraculously falling to the ground. In Psalm 78, 25 says, humans ate Panis Angelicus. That is Latin for the bread of angels. This is food from a whole different stratosphere. It's the bread of heaven. In other words, it's not contaminated or corrupted uh, with, with the curse of sin. It, it, it's the food that, that the angels eat. Doesn't it make you wonder what this tasted like? Well, Exodus tells us, Exodus 16, verse 31, we didn't read this, but um, they, they describe the taste. They say it tasted like wafers made with honey. I find that very interesting, especially the honey part. Because honey is the sugar of that world. Anything that is sweet, they use the word honey. In fact, the Bible makes it clear that there are two things that taste like honey. One, God tastes like honey. And two, his word tastes like honey. So see what God is doing. He is weaning his people off all the sweet things of Egypt. And he's providing them with real honey. He is the manna that our souls crave. That's so why God said, I led you in the desert these 40 years to teach you that you do not live by food alone, but you live by every word that proceeds from my mouth. That's the honey you live by. Psalm 81 verse 10 says, I am the Lord your God. Open your mouth so that I might fill it, that I might lead you, feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock that I might truly satisfy your hearts. Here's another interesting thing about that honey. Israel knew that that desert was not their end. It was, it was not their final destination, that God was leading, to the, leading them to promised land. What's another word for promised land, or how is it described? It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And what does manna taste like? Honey. So think about this. Every single day, as they gather that, that manna from the desert floor, when they put it in their mouth and they have that taste of honey, it's a foretaste. It's a foretaste of the good that's to come. Every day, they're reminded that, that this desert is not our home. That promised land awaits. Every day, they're getting a taste of home. So as they ate this, this food every single day, not only did they have to trust that God was going to provide it uh, on a daily basis, this, this daily bread, but also that God would also be true to his word, that this desert was not their final destination, but that God would get them to where God promised where he would take them. Here's the deal. Salvation can happen in a moment. Boom, the scales come off our eyes. According to this text, deliverance, being delivered from Egypt, takes 40 years. At least we can conclude from this it's a process. 
It's a process of God weaning our hearts off of Egypt and changing our appetites, changing our desires, changing the things that we hunger and thirst for, and redirecting it to him. Because I'll tell you what happened to God's people in, in the desert, as, as difficult as it was, as intense as it was, as terrifying as, as it was. This is the place where they got to know God. This is the place where they experienced the, the provision of God. This is where they got to know the one that truly satisfies. In fact, when you look at that, this part of the story, the deeper they went into the desert, the more intense was their, was their experience of, of God to the point where every day God is raining heaven a manna down from the heavens, water's gushing from the rocks. They don't even have to worry about the next day. And in this spot, God became their everything. Just enough manna for every day. Because the desert is a place where we have nothing, but the desert is a place where we also lack nothing. And the reason why we lack nothing is because we have God, we have Christ. I mean, right now, just think a bit about some of your deserts. When life was painful, when it was intensely difficult, where, where, where you even maybe wondered, I don't know if I can make it through another day. But when you look back on those experiences, uh, can you conclude the way Kim Cronline, after she was here this morning, she's texted me uh, this, this huge long text because um, she's been in the desert of losing her husband a year and a half ago, and just, boom, he was just taken from her. And she said, Rod, thank you. Yes, my desert has been so hard, but God has never been so close. God still offers us a banquet in the desert. Listen to Jesus. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Who's he describing? Someone who's in the desert. And Jesus says, these are the ones who experience me. These are the ones who experience my kingdom. These are the ones who are comforted. These are the ones who are satisfied. These are the ones who see God. Do you know manna? The Jewish hope is that when Messiah comes... He's going to once again rain down this, this bread from heaven. And this is why I don't think it's a, it's a coincidence that there's only one miracle in all four Gospels besides the, the resurrection. And it's the, the, the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. In fact, the Gospels tell us that, that Jesus chose a specific place to do this miracle. He did it when they were in the wilderness. Because this isn't just another magic trick. This is the miracle of manna. Of God providing that desert food. And, and trust me, those 5,000 people that day saw its significance. I know it because John's gospel tells us that they immediately, after this miracle, wanted to force Jesus to be their Messiah. 
Jesus, knowing this, sneaks away. They search him out. They find him. And then listen to what they say to Jesus. In John 6, so they asked him, what sign will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do for us? And then they give a little hint. Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread of life that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. I mean, they're demanding Jesus, give us manna, not just today, not even just for 40 years. Give it to us forever. And I think Jesus shocks them with his answer. And this is my paraphrase. He says more or less, you, you want me to provide manna? The way God provided that manna through Moses? I'm not the provider of manna. I am the manna. I am the banquet. I am the true bread from heaven. And when I become your food, you will never grow hungry. You will never be thirsty. In fact, you will never die. Do you hunger for this? You know we all have a hunger, don't you? Some of us hunger a little bit more. Some of us hunger a little bit less. Trust me, I put myself in that category of, 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 of hungering, like really hungering. And, 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 and there's, a reason, there's a reason why we have this deep hunger. It's because we need to be satisfied. But here's the deal. This is why despair is creeping in more and more. How despairing it is to seek after things like money or friends or accomplishments, power, fame, pleasures, sex, pornography, a new toy, popularity, being beautiful, health, status, only to again and again and again. Experiencing how deeply satisfying it is. Augustine said God has made us for himself. Therefore, our souls are restless until they rest in him. Nothing in this world can ultimately satisfy what our hearts have been made to crave. No career, no relationship, no sport, no pleasure, no job, no spouse, no vacation, no upgrade, no successes, no promotion, no home, no car, no toy or trinket can satisfy hearts that have been made for God. And Jesus said, I'm the bread. I'm the manna. In fact, in verse 27, he says, stop working so hard for, for food that spoils. Because here's the deal. Whatever we substitute in place of the real bread, 
And we have to wake up to this. It will not satisfy. In fact, not only will it eventually not satisfy, but it's going to spoil. And because we become what we eat, when we eat food that spoils, we eventually spoil as it spoils. If you're wondering right now why, why our culture is, is rotting, look no further than the things that we eat, the things that we are consuming, the things that we, we, we are taking in. We, we take in constantly. We eat it. We, we gorge on it. Things that spoil, and then as it spoils, we spoil with it. Listen to Jesus. He says, I am the bread of life. Our ancestors, yes, ate that manna in the wilderness, yet even they died. But I am the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. In other words, what Jesus is saying, even as awesome as that manna was that God rained down his, on his people in the desert, uh, I mean, it was the bread of angels. It was the bread from heaven. This bread still pointed to something greater. And Jesus is the manna that never spoils. In fact, he is the antidote to the food that Adam ate in the garden. The food that Adam ate that he wasn't supposed to eat. That, that, that fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It not only poisoned Adam, but it poisoned Adam. Every inch of the, of, of the universe that God made. But think about it. Jesus is that manna. He's literally food from another tree. That when we take it in, he cures us of that poison. He heals us. Which is why Jesus said, for the bread that God offers is the bread that comes from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Think about just delicious bread right now with all of its aromas. You don't just look at it. You don't just smell it. You don't just talk about it. You don't even just admire it. You don't even just play with it. You don't even take classes on how to understand it. We eat it. We chew it. We digest it. And it becomes sustenance. It becomes our life. Every day, we need to ask, what kind of food Will we eat? Will we continue to choose the food of this world? Or will we eat the bread of life? And like that man in the wilderness, every day we got to go out, we got to gather it in, we got to collect it, and we got to eat it. Let's pray. God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with a prayer that I know is, it, it, it's a dangerous prayer to pray. 
God, make us hungry. And God, I know that, 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 that when we pray, pray that prayer, we're, we're asking that you would lead us to a place where you can starve us of the things of this world to show us what our hearts truly crave. And God, in this place, as Jesus prayed, would you give us daily bread? God, would you give us manna? Would you give us every single day a sufficient intake of Jesus that our souls need to live? Thank you for being the bread of life. God, may we consume you. In Jesus' name, amen.